Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, Episode 113. And in this episode, we will continue the theme of fraud. This is part two of the two-part series on fraud. In the last episode, we discussed consumer fraud, which is very prevalent nowadays, and it's taking on new shapes and forms. In this episode, we'll go into detail about so-called higher-level crime, such as white-collar crime, accounting fraud, insider trading, and the difference between a Ponzi scheme and a pyramid scheme. I actually didn't know the subtle differences. For those of you that are new to the channel, the aim of this channel is three main things. The first thing is to be educated. With education, you can improve your financial literacy. And with education, it leads to the second E, which is being empowered. Being empowered means you're able to take this knowledge and speak to your credentialed accountant or financial advisor at a level that you can understand it. The third E is also to entertain. Just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Please make sure you take any financial decisions after listening to one of my episodes back to your credentialed appropriate advisors. If you're stuck on what to do in terms of broad principles, here are some simple steps to get you on the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Take at least 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. It's your money, never to be touched again because you're the most important person in your life. Step two is you've got to invest that money, ideally into something that you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market and index funds, so I just buy index funds. Step three is you'll get dividends from those investments and hopefully you will reinvest those dividends and wherever possible, automate them. That is, automatically reinvest those dividends because the power of compounding over the long term is phenomenal. Step four, the long term. I'm not talking doing it for five, 10 or 15 years. I'm saying do it for at least 20, 30, if not 40 plus years. The longer you do it, the more powerful it is for your retirement. And step five, my favorite, is wherever possible, automate the investments forever. If you did these five simple steps, you're more likely to have more money than you'll ever need. Now remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Before we get on to the main topic of higher level crime, I had a question from Mohsen who asks... Hi Dev, thanks for what you do with these podcasts. I find them very helpful. 
My question is, how do I automate my investments? Thanks, Mosin, for that question. I'm a big fan of automation where possible, accepting that not all aspects of saving and investments is actually automatable, even if that's a word. Now, this is how I do it. I get paid on a specific day, usually weekly. I know how much I get paid, and this is quite common for the majority of Australians who are non-doctors, but also I do understand that for a lot of doctors, this may be a little bit different given sole training businesses, etc. Now, we'll get to variable income um, a little bit later, but when it comes to almost all hospital doctors, training doctors, junior doctors, registrars in the public system, which is a sizable number, they all get paid a wage. They know their wage roughly, at least the base wage. So I take a set percentage, minimum of 20% of after-tax income from that base wage, and I would put it aside. So how does this step actually work? Well, if I know that I'll get paid about $2,000 per week after tax, then 20% of that is around $400. I set up an automatic transfer the day after I get paid, around midnight in my case, for the sum of $400 straight into my Vanguard index fund. Now, just a bit of a disclaimer, I'm just using $2,000 after-tax income as an example. That is not my actual after-tax income. And the index fund that I invest in, for example, has a reference number. It has a bill of code. So the automatic transfer is in the form of a BPAY payment. Now, this process goes on and on. In fact, there is no end date to my BPAY payments into the Vanguard index funds. If you log into my NetBank, it has recurring payments into Vanguard and it's perpetual. And that money enters the Vanguard account directly and buys into the index fund at a unit cost. It's simple, it's effective, it mindlessly boring, which is what I like, and I never forget to do it. The advantage is that I can't spend that 20% because it goes into the index fund before I even have a chance to spend it or see it in the bank account the next morning. Now, what happens if I take on extra shifts or do more work? Do I still have to pay myself 20% of that extra shift money? And the answer is, yes, I do. And yes, you do. Any income that you get, which is after tax into your bank account, any extra income, I recommend you take at least 20% of it out and save it. In fact, the reality is for me, I pay myself 100% of that extra money. It's money I never should have had. It's money that I only have because I did extra work. So I invest almost all of it. Sometimes I may choose to spend 20% of it and save 80% of it, but the majority of the time I'm saving a significant portion of that extra income. Now, when it comes to yourself, it all depends on your motivation. But I'm a millennial, I'm in my 30s, so I want to save as much as possible now because I recognize that my savings rate is far more important than my investment returns. Now, this doesn't mean that I really skimp on my lifestyle. We're very fortunate enough to have a pretty decent lifestyle as it is. And if you choose to pay yourself 20% of it and spend 80% of that extra money, in your case, I wouldn't blame you. That's fine. That's not what I do, 
but that's okay if you wanted to do that. It's the habit of constantly paying yourself. That's what counts. That is the most important aspect of this. Now, what about situations or professions which have variable incomes, which a lot of my listeners are doctors who have variable incomes. What about them? Now, this is where knowing your tax rate roughly comes in very handy. And this is also where knowing your rough earnings gross per week comes in very handy. You need to have a baseline income after analysing the past three to five years of income. Otherwise, you'd have to be looking at your variable income on a week-by-week basis, which may not be practical. So if you're a sole trader and have a fluctuating income, then choose a base income, choose a rough tax rate based on previous year's tax returns, and use that as your baseline wage. Then build on it. Here's how I would propose Mohsen does it if he or she was on a taxable income. Suppose the base wage is through $2,000 per week, but the variable wage is around $2,500 per week. So that's your extra $500 variance Um, in terms of making extra money. Supposing the tax rate is 35%, which means they need to set aside about $700 out of that $2,000 gross wage, which is their base wage, as taxation. Now, I'm purposely excluding GST because it makes it more complicated, but make sure you factor that in into your calculation if it's relevant to you. GST is not really relevant to a lot of healthcare workers, Uh, in terms of the services they provide, but they may have to pay GST on the service charges that they get charged uh, if they're working for a practice, etc. Now, to be safe in this case, I would even calculate a tax rate of 40% instead of 35% and have a 5% buffer. The last thing you want to do is running out of money to pay the ATO. That's an absolute disaster. The ATO debt is not forgivable and they will use their full force of the law and power to come after you with ridiculous interest rate payments if you're late, with stern reminders from the commissioner. So do not take the chance. So if your tax rate is 35% as an example, bump it up to 40%. It's okay just to be safe. So let's work it out for 40%, which equates to $800 of ATO money. That's the taxation money. This goes into a special bank account, which is untouchable. You could choose to offset it against your mortgage if you wanted to. That is completely fine, provided you delineate this account and you delineate that 800 bucks as tax money. Now, what some people propose and some people have told me is that they may have multiple offset accounts pointing to their mortgage. So they might have maybe one offset account, which is purely for GST, one offset account, which is purely for taxation, and one offset account, which is the actual savings. And that's completely fine. You can do it that way as well. You need to have a way to separate your taxation money. So once you've done that, you've got about $1,200 of after-tax money in that week. Now you follow the previous steps, which I've already talked about. Take 20% of that, and you either BPay it straight into your investments or brokerage account if investing in shares or ETFs or any other separate pay-yourself-money account call it pay yourself money account. A lot of net banks, you can actually name the accounts. And that now equates to about $240, which is around 20%. You now have about $960 of your after-tax money out of the original 2000 to use for expenses such as mortgage, rent, food, utilities on a weekly basis. Um, That's assuming on a gross income of $2,000. So you can automate this. Some weeks you may have a lower income and some weeks you may have a higher income. 
Now, to compensate for this, you save the entire extra income that you make in addition to your base sole trader wage. Remember I said variable wage of $2,000 to $2,500 per week? What I mean is on weeks you get paid $2,500, you don't spend the extra $500. You account for taxes, you account for pay yourself money, and you save the rest or invest it. You don't spend it. You need to behave as if you never earned that money. That is the safest way that sole traders can handle their money when it comes to budgeting um, and compartmentalization um, and when it comes to trying to automate their saving strategies and their investment strategy. So I hope this answers Mohsen's question. So the salient points of the question and the answer is that finance is mostly behavioral. It is not a math problem, or I should say, it is not just a math problem. And if you don't automate, then have a set reminder system in order to ensure you don't forget. For me, I just find it very easy to automate as much as possible. It saves me a lot of time and a lot of hassle. So thank you, Mohsen, for that question. Now to the main topic of higher level crime. Now we'll discuss the subtopics of white collar crime, accounting fraud, insider trading, and the differences between a Ponzi scheme and a pyramid scheme. So what is white-collar crime? Now, we hear about it on TV all the time. There's documentaries about this, but what actually is white-collar crime? So generally, white-collar crime is non-violent in nature, and it seeks to protect one's own finances or to obtain other people's assets or money in order to gain a personal or business advantage. And under this subheading, there are crimes such as corporate fraud, money laundering, securities fraud, and more. So where does the term white collar crime come from? The term is representative of the so-called person of respectability and higher social status, end quote. Now, the term blue-collar represents the average working-class person, end quote. Now, personally, I don't like these terms as it reeks of social status. And in 2021, for me, I consider anyone who works hard for a living as respectable and what they do doesn't define who they are. Let's go into detail of the subheadings associated with white-collar crime. So, the first one is corporate fraud. So, what is it? This is when corporations or even governments uh, and government entities seek to falsify their financial status in order to deceive investors. Now, Enron did this. AIG did this in America. Uh, They're the two big ones that come to mind. And in Australia, corporate fraud occurred within the banking industry, the financial services industry. For example, ANZ sent misleading file notes to the Supreme Court in relation to the Supreme Court hearings and also manipulated benchmark interest rates. And of course, ASIC, which is the Australian Securities Investment Commission, got wind of it. Who can forget the CBA insurance arm denying life insurance claims to customers despite their claims being legitimate? Um, The American corporation, Halliburton, the American contractor who overcharged the US government for contracting work during the Iraq war. Now, there's plenty more examples around when it comes to corporate fraud, even in our very own backyard. Now, the majority of corporate fraud scandals involve some sort of falsification of documents involving the company's finances. Shady valuation practices, which inflate the corporation valuation, which entices investors 
to put their money into the account. Oh, sorry, put their money into the company, company stock. So in 2014, for example, the Bank of America sold mortgage-backed securities to investors based on inflated valuations of properties. Guess what? This is exactly what happened, which caused the 2008 financial crisis. Yet, it's still happening in America. That's insane. In fact, if I remember correctly, there are efforts in Australia to relax the lending standards so that people can borrow more money, particularly to buy homes. It also involves a select few within the corporation who do these corporate scandals, um, who do deals in order to enrich themselves. And this is called self-dealing. Now, this can happen in the insurance business or commission business, in the financial sectors where clients' best interest is not taken into account. But the person who's selling the client, the product looks after their own interests. So it's not about the client anymore. It's about the person that's selling the product. Now, let's use an example to see how corporate fraud or self-dealing actually works. So Amy has a stock portfolio worth around $200,000, and she deals with a stockbroker who buys and sells shares for her. Amy is an active investor, and Amy's broker is called Broker ABC. Now, Broker ABC rings Amy with a buy recommendation on company XYZ stock, but they don't disclose that Broker ABC already has already invested their own money into the company XYZ prior to recommending it to Amy. So in this case, Broker ABC has looked after their own interests ahead of their client Amy's interest. This is called front-running. Now, this is different to insider trading. So we need to learn about what is insider trading because it's a term that's used and often misquoted in the media and we need to understand the intricacies of it. Insider trading is when an individual or entity buys into a company's stock with knowledge of that company, which is not public yet. And knowledge is materially going to affect the company's valuation or stock price. So in this case, the insider is the person who has the knowledge about the company's inner workings and ideas and plans. So what sort of information is considered crucial for insider trading? The information is called material non-public information. Now, this is basically data pertaining to a company which is yet non-public, but can have an impact on the company's share price. Now, is having information itself illegal? The answer is no. Insider trading is only illegal if you have the information and act on it. If you don't act on it, it's not insider trading, as you haven't yet traded on the information. Now, what if you have insider information, but you don't act on it, but use someone else to make trades for you, and then why are the profits? Is that still illegal? And the answer is, that's still insider trading. You've been linked to the trade, and your knowledge of the insider information has also been linked to the trade. The penalties are quite severe, financially, reputationally, and also includes jail time for insider trading. So let's use an example to highlight insider trading. Amy works for a multinational corporation and is one of the executives. Now, she becomes aware that the first quarter earnings of a company is much lower than anticipated in the media releases. She owns a sizable stock portfolio of this company. She quietly dumps a thousand shares upon becoming aware of the first quarter earnings, which at that time wasn't public information. Again, 
non-public material information is going to affect the stock price of Amy's multinational corporation. Now, this is classic insider trading where the stock value goes down based on poor earnings, which hasn't even been publicly reported yet. Now, what if Amy shorted the company instead of actually dumping the stock? Is it still insider trading? And the answer is yes, it is. Amy has used insider information in order to open a short position on the company's stock. And when the stock price falls, she buys it back and makes a profit. That's classic insider trading, even though it's a short position, not your traditional selling position. Now, is insider trading the same as market manipulation? This is where it gets really, really, really tricky. In recent times, there's been a lot of talk about market manipulation. Elon Musk posts about BTC, and all of a sudden, its value surges along with Tesla shares. Well, I think this comes under free speech regulation and such a fine line, it's actually very, very difficult to prosecute someone like Elon Musk for market manipulation. Now, Wall Street Beds created a storm, similarly by buying GameStop and not selling on purpose to bankrupt hedge fund companies. Isn't this the same as insider trading? If not, why not? Now, market manipulation is not the same as insider trading, and this is where it gets really tricky and really, really very, very fine differentiation. Market manipulation is when traders deliberately create more interest in a stock in order to drum up or drum down the value of a company's stock. Technically, this is kind of what Wall Street bets did and is what they did illegal. Well, it's very, very tricky because it has to be premeditated if you're going to manipulate a market. It has to be pre-planned and not a spur-of-the-moment thing. I suspect their decision on Wall Street bets was more spur-of-the-moment. And the question is, when did it become market manipulation, particularly when big money from other hedge fund companies got involved? Now, there are four main ways the markets can be manipulated. The first method is called churning. This is when a trader places a buy and sell order at a very close price to one another, but does it at huge volumes. This artificially increases activity, i.e. increases liquidity. This may attract new investors, which increases the price. So I guess churning is a bit like, you know, a group of people just gathering around something that's completely a waste of time which attracts more people to gather around to have a look at something that is completely a waste of time. And we see this in human behavior when we go, you know, in large crowds, all of a sudden there's a bit of a commotion and people just gather around and you sort of find out nothing actually is happening within that gathering. The second way of market manipulation is called rumoring. And this is known as rumoring because you create random rumors online or social media about companies which artificially drive up or drive down the company's stock price, then taking advantage of this by buying at opportune times. The third way to market manipulate is called wash trading. This is when you're selling something and purchasing it again at the same price, and this spurs activity and sometimes done for tax advantage purposes. And the last form of manipulation of the markets is called bear raiding. 
This is the most controversial, in fact, deliberately talking smack about a company in order to drive its price down. In fact, this is what GameStop buying frenzy, which resulted a bunch of Reddit users rebelling against the short selling because a bunch of people got on CNBC or MSNBC or CNN and started talking smack about um, about GameStop. And it really did anger a lot of retail investors that said, well, enough's enough. Um, you're going after our beloved company and we're going to teach you a lesson. And of course, big money got involved as well. Now to the next subheading, what is accounting fraud? This is when corporations intentionally manipulate their accounting and financial statements in order to balance the books on paper. So everything looks fine on paper, but the reality is much different. This is exactly what Enron did back in the 2000s. This then leads to investors being misled who invest their hard-earned money into the company hoping to return a profit, but end up losing all of their money. So how can accounting fraud be done? You can do it four main ways. The first way is you can overstate your revenue. The second way is you can understate your expenses. The third way is you can actually fail to record expenses. And the fourth way is you can misstate assets and liabilities. Now, the focus on accounting fraud is any fraud is largely on the intent. The accounting fraud must be intentional. So let's use an example where some people might say it's accounting fraud, but it's actually not. Company XYZ is in the business of toll roads. And the last financial quarter of 2019, they predicted a 10% rise in profits due to more road users, which means more toll revenue. But in March 2020, the COVID pandemic and lockdowns meant people used toll roads much less, which means they took a hit to their revenue and profits. This is not accounting fraud. This was a misprojection based on events out of control of the company's hands. And they didn't intentionally mislead the public. They revised their forecasts, And this alerted the investors about the expected downturn in their revenue or profits. So in this case, because of the COVID pandemic, genuinely the toll roads company didn't project a significant profit um, compared to what they had initially projected. They revised their forecasts and that is because the circumstances and the environment had changed significantly. So that is not accounting fraud. A real-world classic example of accounting fraud is the Enron case, which is well worth understanding. Enron hid its liabilities, it's hid its debts from their investors. And they did this by not including it in the balance sheets. And they used a technique called off-balance sheet entities. Now, this is not illegal itself, but they did this deliberately with the intent to deceive and did not disclose. That's the main point the intention. When the public knew of the true extent of debts hidden in off-balance entities, their share price collapsed in 2001. Eventually, the company executives were prosecuted and sent to jail. It also has flow-on effects as Arthur Anderson, who handled their books, where a large accounting firm also collapsed with them as well. If you're interested about the Enron debacle, there's a great documentary about Enron called Smartest Guys in the Room, which was released in 2005, I think that's well worth a watch. So 
is all insider trading actually illegal? Now, you might need to check with your local authorities, but my understanding is if it's true insider trading, yes, it is illegal. Now, before finishing up on this episode, I want to clarify the main differences between a pyramid scheme and a Ponzi scheme. I actually thought they were the same thing, but they're not. In a pyramid scheme, you recruit another person in relation to selling a service or a product. Then that person recruits more people. Then that person recruits more people. And the problem here is eventually, due to compounding effect, you will run out of recruiters. Usually there is a kickback from recruiting and selling products, but the products are not great. And eventually when the last person fails to recruit anyone else, the whole model collapses. That is a pyramid scheme. In a Ponzi scheme, it's more related to a financial fraud where money flows into a portfolio and the money flows out. The scheme is self-fulfilling as long as new money keeps coming in. And it's kind of like recruiting new investors. Let's use an example to highlight a Ponzi scheme in the world of finance. Rob is a portfolio fund manager and his fund claims an annual return of 20%. In fact, it promises this. And as a result, investors pour money into the fund. After some time, some investors want their returns. They sell their positions and make 20%. How? Because Rob fulfills their promise. This means more investors pour money into the portfolio for a quick 20% profit because they see other people cashing out their money at 20% profit. The scheme works as long as more investors keep pouring money in in order to fund those investors who want to sell out. The problem is, if they don't sell out, then eventually new money flow stops or becomes drier. Because if you don't sell out, you don't really realise your gains. And this means eventually, when the investors do sell, there isn't any money in the kitty to pay their 20% profits compounded over time. This is what Bernie Madoff did in a now world-famous Ponzi scheme worth $64 billion US dollars involving 4,800 investors. He's currently serving life in prison and is suffering from actually chronic kidney failure for which his lawyers wanted release based on compassionate grounds and of course the lawyer's requests were denied. I found this interesting quote from Murdoff in, from not Murdoff, Madoff himself from prison and he says, they call me Uncle Bernie or Mr Madoff. I can't walk anywhere without someone shouting their greetings and encouragement to keep my spirit up. It's really quite sweet how concerned everyone is about my well-being, including the staff. In fact, it's much safer here than walking the streets of New York. That was Bernie Madoff. Now that's about it for this episode, which focused on white-collar crime, and this ends the two-part fraud series. Fraud is something which is likely going to affect us all. It's so important to protect your personal identity, financial documents, and also understand some of the methods in which fraudsters try and take advantage. I have so many more topics coming up, and if you wanted a specific topic, don't hesitate to Facebook me or tweet me. I will do what I can. Stay tuned, and indeed, watch out for those upcoming episodes. We're going to talk about stock buybacks, we're going to talk about investing for kids, and much more. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using. Or leave a review on all of the platforms and make it five stars. That's even better. And please leave a positive review. In that theme, here is a review I found on Apple Podcast from Harsha KD. 
who says, I didn't realize how financially naive I was until I started listening to this podcast. Being a doctor, I had so many assumptions about my income and finances. And listening to this podcast made me question those and help me make financially healthy choices. I've learned so much over time and I continue to do so. Thanks, Deb, for making such a highly informative and entertaining series. Thanks, Harsha, for the feedback. The Apple Podcast reviews have now gone up from 100 to last time I checked 155 ratings or five-star ratings. So please help me get to 200. That really helps promote the podcast so more people can find it and listen to it, download it. And wherever possible, please share my episodes with friends and family online, social media, tweet, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever you can think about it, even Instagram, because the more people learn about finances, the more we talk about money, I think it's actually good for everyone. Also, I know when I refer patients now, my voice is slightly recognizable, and I appreciate that the doctors who take referrals from me do not disclose too much about me. I'm cognizant that at some stage, I may have to come out in public and reveal my identity, but I'm just not there yet. So thank you very much for respecting my privacy. Really appreciate it. Remember to like Devraga Facebook page, shout out to questions and comments or topic suggestions. Share this channel with family and friends. You can have it on Apple Podcast, Anchor App, CastBox and all the major platforms and also via the devraga.com website. Always pay yourself first, take 20% of after-tax income and put it aside. You are the most important person in your life. So make sure you do that before you do anything else and learn about fraud and how to protect yourself against it. It's surprisingly common and you're likely to be affected at some stage in your life. That is a reality of the situation. This is Devraga Personal Finance, episode 113. And as always, please make sure you stay safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.